Welcome back to our study of Hebrews. We're so glad that you're here this morning. As we begin, let me just say that how exciting it is to have Evan be walking with us in these series. I think the Lord is doing a wonderful work there, don't you? Don't be too excited. I mean, just calm that down. Just a little bit of a amen is fine. But um, we're excited about that, about what God is doing in him and in several of the young men in this church. And I just want to emphasize that this morning as we begin, not to accentuate Evan May, but just to say that there is a group of young men in this church whom the Lord it seems to us, is preparing not for ministry in general because all of us are called to ministry. If we're in Christ, we are ministers of the gospel. But to particular aspects of ministry within the local church. So just be praying for these young guys, be encouraging them, be watching them, be helping them. Uh, That would be the thing to do as we walk together. And as we watch what God is doing, as he collects all of us together for the usefulness of his kingdom. This morning, let's turn in our Bibles into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the study of your word. Father, apart from your word, we have nothing. Father, apart from your word, we would have no revelation about who you are and how you are, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, the law. Father, all we would know is that someone created this universe. But that's about the extent of it. But Father, in your graciousness, you have given us your word. The communication of your very heart communication of your very personhood, the communication of your very purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit to implement your purpose in our lives. Father, we thank you that your word not only has saved us, but we, have, we are being sanctified and maintained and secured by the application of your word through the Holy Spirit. As we hear your word, as we read it, and as we take it into ourselves and believe it and obey it, rely on it, look to it, rest in it, enjoy it so much. So, Father, as we have been studying Hebrews or any book of your word, Father, we pray that your promise to cause your word to be successful in its delivery, and if it's work in us, Father, that this word is producing in us a great work of righteousness. And Father, there may be areas in our lives that we're not even aware that your word is at work. In fact, the probability is that your word is at work in so many areas, we just know one or two here or there. But it's such a pervasive work. We ask that that work not only continue, that it proliferate, and that its effect will increase exponentially day by day. 
So we thank you. And we look forward to the greater work of your spirit as you continue to mature us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin again, or continue rather, this final section of Hebrews, you remember the first section and we outlined Hebrews, and there are a number of ways of outlining it. It's not right or wrong to do it this way. But we basically outline Hebrews in the finished work of Christ. And this morning we get into this section which we're calling the continuing work of Christ. And we want to make sure we understand the distinction. When the Bible talks about the finished work of Christ, it doesn't mean that the work of Christ on the cross is finished and there is no more work to do. It simply means the finished work of Christ as to the payment of sin, the wrath of God for our sin. That is finished. Remember, Evan talked about that last week, that Jesus sat down. He is seated, no longer to stand, no longer to come out of the throne of heaven to be re-crucified, to be represented as a sacrifice of sin. It's over. It's once for all. And so that work of the Lord Jesus is completed, never to be repeated ever again for all eternity. It is finished, John 19.30. But there is still the continuing work of the Holy Spirit, the continuing work of the cross. As the Holy Spirit takes the great work of Jesus, our redemption, and applies it to our heart in regenerating us, and continues to apply it to our lives in our sanctification and continues us securely all the way to the end until the Lord Jesus returns and we stand before him in judgment on that day to be welcomed into heaven. That's the continuing work of the cross. And so we want to make sure that we understand that both applications are correct. There is a finished work. Jesus is seated as to the completion of the work of redemption through the cross for our sins, having paid the full price of the wrath of God. But in relation to the continuing work of God, he stands. He is a general who is standing, overlooking, if you would, the fields of battle. Remember in chapter 7 of Acts, I see Jesus, what? Standing. And he is standing as to continuing the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in us until that day it is completely completed forever and we will have a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth. You remember again the reason for the writing or the proclamation of this word in Hebrews. It is a warning. It is an exhortation to the people that in their trials which they consider so bad that they may have to go back to Judaism, that they may have to apostatize and leave the faith of Christ, leave the ground of salvation, and go back to that which is shadows, leave the light. And I want to comment one more time before I get into the text this morning, that every one of us, first of all, will experience trials. Anyone in here? not experiencing or having experienced any trial at all. John, you raise your hand. What? Oh, I thought John May was over there. John May is the only one who's never experienced a trial. Anyone here 
you have never experienced a trial, a difficulty. So what is the purpose? And I want to reiterate this. I've said it before. There is always a dual purpose in our trials. There is the purpose of Satan to undermine our faith, to question God's goodness. Hath God said? And to ultimately, if he can, destroy our standing in Christ. But did you just hear what I said? If he can destroy our standing in Christ. But there is a great purpose in our trials. The purpose of God is to take these trials and to apply them to our lives in such a way that God is extricating our hold upon ourselves and the world and our own abilities, taking our hands off us and what we see and what we typically depend upon. And through trials, peeling our fingers off the world and placing them on himself. Every trial is like a pulling back of a finger. And when you do that, it what? But he's wanting our grip on him to be ever increasingly great. That's what the trial's all about. It's not that God doesn't love us. He hasn't forgotten about us. He's too weak to do anything else. It's none of that. That's all devil thought. It's devil thought. It's that God says this. But we know that in all things, God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? Trials. So the author of the Hebrews is telling them, this is what's going on. The purpose is to destroy you from Satan, but to build you up in Christ. So this morning, what we're going to do is take this passage from 1019 to 1140, And we're going to divide it into four sections. We're going to call the first section exhortation from 1019 to 1025. So the author has demonstrated, remember previously, the superiority and the sufficiency of Jesus over angels and over all men, over entire old covenant system. And as he has demonstrated and has completed that proof, that Jesus Christ in his person and in his work as high priest is absolutely and forever superior to and sufficient. Now, he says, let's talk about how to be encouraged in applying these truths to our lives. Because when you read the Bible, you will always see this, especially in the New Testament. There is always doctrine, truth. And the purpose of doctrine and the purpose of truth and the purpose of getting all that information into our hearts and our minds is for the application or the living out of that in our lives. So truth is not just a thing or a system of information, but truth becomes a living reality in our lives so that we become the living doctrine of Jesus Christ unto the world. And so let's see what he says. In chapter 10, verse 19, this is how he says. He says, therefore, therefore. 
Now, what is the word therefore? Every time you see the word therefore, what should you do? You should pause for a moment and think, what is therefore, therefore? Always therefore refers to what has been said. It always does that. And I believe in this context, there is a general gathering up of everything that this author has said from the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 18. That, therefore, gathers up all of that in a general way. But I think in a much more specific way, it's probably more bearing down upon the last section that he has just talked to us about, beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, with the whole issue of Melchizedek and then the issue of the better priesthood in Jesus Christ. So the therefore, I think, has at least two levels. The entire system of information that he's given us from the very beginning, but especially in that last section, 7, 1 to 10, 18. And so, therefore, emphasizing his previous argument, the author first summarizes the benefits of Christ's better priesthood. Remember what he has said. It's better, it's better, it's better, it's better in that previous section. And so as he begins to talk about applying this superior priesthood, this man is a good teacher. He stops for a moment and he says, look, I know I've said all this, but I want to kind of gather it up and give it to you in encapsulated form. So he starts doing this. He says, therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We have confidence. Why do we have confidence? Why do you have confidence? Why do I have confidence that when I experience trials or when I sin purposefully for the 38th time, do I still have confidence to enter the holy place? Or am I going to receive the condemnation and the thought of the devil? You better not go in there this time because this time you've just done it too many times. You see, the Bible tells me I not only can enter, I must enter. I not only can enter, but what? I must enter. Because God knows my total weakness. And he knows that I am but dust and frail. And when I fail, which is going to be a whole lot more than I realize, we just know maybe a tenth of a percent of our failure. Think of that. That when I fail, not only I can, but what? I must, therefore I will run to the most holy place where God is. Now, we know that God is with us, but we're talking about turning to God purposefully in prayer and going to him and opening ourselves to him and allowing his spirit to deal with the issues of our weaknesses. You see, this entering the presence of God before the cross was something that was impossible. They could not have this personal access. You remember, not even Moses could just walk into the most holy place, which was the place of God's presence. Moses couldn't go into the holy of holies. Hey, I'm God's man. I'm walking in. He'd have been fried. 
No man could walk into the very presence of God, which was exemplified and typified in the most holy place of the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple. You remember the curtain. No man could do that except one man once a year, and that only on the basis of the blood of the Lamb that had been shed. See, not even a Moses had the access to God that we have. Why? Because, you see, the blood of Jesus had not yet been shed. And this is what the Hebrew Christians are thinking about going back to. They're thinking about going back to a system that did not allow them to have the access that we have. We have continual, unfettered, complete access to God. So when, let me encourage you, not if you sin, but when you sin, when you sin. And I hate to say it that way, but that's just the fact of the matter. When I sin, <clears throat> I have to go into the presence of God. I must do that. Don't ever allow the enemy of your soul and the enemy of God's goodness to say to you, don't go yet. Wait a while. The moment you sin and realize you sin, go into the presence of God. Run into the presence of God. I remember one time years ago, I was wrestling with some issues in my life. And and something occurred. And I was so overcame, I literally ran and yelled to God. What's going on? What's happening? I've got to have an answer. This has got to be dealt with. Go get God. Amen? Go get a hold of God. Don't be squeamish. Don't be shy. Be godly. Because he says, I paid the price. Come on down. I paid the price. Come on in. So let's stop this, this hesitancy. And let's be bold before our God. And so, what is the basis? Look at verse 19. We are allowed to come into the very holy place. By what? By the blood of Jesus. This is the reason I can come in, and this is the reason you can come in. I can come in because the blood has covered all of my sin, and I now can walk into the presence of God, even having just sinned as a forgiven person. And so the issue never is with God about forgiveness, even when I sin. It's about purifying. It's about overcoming. It's about dealing with the sin. Never anymore. Is it about the issue of punishment, the issue of retribution, the issue of God's anger against me? It's the issue of a loving father who says, my son, my daughter, come on in and let's walk together. So I, as you cooperate and receive this, can overcome your sin and increase my grace in this area of your weakness. So the blood of Jesus Well, in verse 20, the author elaborates. What about the blood of Jesus? In verse 20, he says, the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, 
the new and the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let me stop there for a moment before I go on to the next verse. You see, what curtain? He says, the new and living way that he opened through us, I'm sorry, for us through the curtain. What curtain are we talking about here? I mean, do you remember in Isaiah 59, 2, the word says through the prophet, God says through the prophet, your sins have made a separation between you and me. And that separation in the old covenant, in the tabernacle and in the temple, was exemplified by that very large curtain that came down between the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was indwelling in that most holy inner place in the tabernacle or the temple. And there was a big, thick curtain hanging there, keeping all those out except the priests, high priests, once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, once a year. Because, you see, the sin of the people had caused them not to be able to have that access, to move back and forth. So that curtain was there. But when Jesus died, what does Matthew 27, 51 says? When Jesus said, it is finished, what happened to that curtain? An invisible hand took this big, thick, six-inch curtain And from the top to the bottom, isn't it interesting how specific the word is? If it did not say that, then someone could have said, someone went in there from the bottom and cut it all the way up. The word specifies it was not just torn in two. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom, thus eliminating man's ability to cut this thing. The top to the bottom. Isn't God great about these things? And that invisible hand of the Holy Spirit took that curtain in his hand and he ripped that thing apart where no longer God's people would have uh, not have the ability to have free access into the presence of God. It's like having your loving children and never being able really to see them, to hug and to kiss them and to sit them on your lap and to be with them in an intimacy. Now for the first time, God is going to have his people in intimate relationship. And we're that people. No longer the curtain. No longer the veil. Why? Because the great son of God in his death caused God to be able to justly and mercifully rip the thing down from the top to the bottom. I like that language. I like that tore it down. That's exactly what he did. What was the result? Why did God do it? So we could have confidence to enter into this unanswerable place previously. So in view of this, in view of this, by the blood, a new and living way, the curtain, his flesh, You see, his flesh was torn, and as a result of his flesh having been torn, and he dies, 
Therefore, the curtain now is torn, emblematic of the flesh being torn and the work of separation now having been done away with. There's no more separation. So the next time we sing that song that Matt leads us in sometime, there is no more separation. You're amazed. I knew something, aren't you? He's back there. Man, that man needs to lead worship more often. There is no more separation. What are we thinking of? The curtain has been torn down because his flesh has been torn. And we have free access. Not to flippantly come in, but to come in boldly and with confidence, but with great joy and great awesome. I don't know. You know, we need to see God as astonishing and as great. That we can have access before the throne of grace. The next time you think about this, think about how unworthy we are and how much we still do wrong, think wrong, act wrong. And yet even in that, God says, come on in. It's an amazing God, amazing grace. So in view of this, the author gives four corporate commands. It's a corporate thing. It's not just singular. It's corporate together. So let's look at these verses 22. Therefore, let us draw near How? With a true heart of full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you think, do you believe that your hearts have been cleansed from the defilement of sin? Not from the presence of sin, but it's from its defilement. Yes. Let us hold fast, hold on to fast. The confession or the profession of our hope without wavering. You see, he's telling these people, hold on. Draw near. Don't let the trials cause your hands to weaken and your heart to weaken. Hold on. When trials come, get even a greater grip on God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for... He who promised is faithful. Let us consider. Consider how to do what? Stir up one another to love and to good works. So as we see these issues arising in my life, in your life, in the life of the church, in our lives, let us aggressively but with a good and kind heart go to others and stir them up and help them and walk with them and encourage them, and to say to them, you know, I've been through these kinds of circumstances also, but God has delivered me from them and in the midst of them because he's faithful. And what he's done in my life, he can and he will do in your life. Why? Because he's not a respecter of persons. We are all his children. We need to much greater way be understanding and seeing the difficulties that we're all going through and collectively getting into one another's lives to help one another. Rather than, uh-oh, there's that lady, Carol Hayes, let me kind of walk over here. I know she's a problem. I don't like her. Who? If there's something wrong in this lady's life, if she is whatever, that should cause us to glow to her and gravitate to her as if a magnet is drawing us to her. Why? Because she's a daughter of God. She's God's daughter. That's why. 
That's how we're to live. To consider, think about how to do this. Lord, how can I be used in a way to more greatly impact and minister to and be involved in the life of other believers in the church? Not maybe in an official capacity, I want a title, I want a ministry, but in my daily walk as I am with the group of believers corporately together or I'm by myself and the Lord begins to cause me to see other things and I see, Lord, show me how and whom to connect. See, our mindset should be connecting to one another for the purpose of the ministry of the gospel. Do you have that mindset? We need to be a lot more aggressive in this, a lot more aggressive in this, more tenacious, more hound-dogging one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, works, faithful obedience. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Why? All the more as you see the day approaching. We need to encourage others to come together in the corporate assembly. It's not right to be obnoxious, and I know I am never obnoxious in this. But if we don't have a passion, we had a couple in this room. They weren't here for two weeks. Man, that's not going down. You can't miss a couple of weeks, and we're not going to find out what's going on. Why? Because, you see, we know that there is a mysterious and unique work of the Holy Spirit of God that he does when we gather together on these kinds of occasions, which work does not occur at any other time. And quite frankly, we don't want you to miss you see, my standing before God is not affected if Kyle doesn't come to church. His is, perhaps. And there's no way that we're going to allow anyone else's standing to be affected detrimentally without aggressively getting in to those lives. Do you agree or not? Then let's do this in a good and kind and loving way as I always do it. Bill Treby would be the first one to agree with me. Verse 26. Now, you see, we've been going on well. It's all encouragement. It's all good things. And then the author again throws the wrench into the works. I mean, why can't he just preach a positive gospel? Why so much issue about sin? Why can't we just tell people that Jesus loves them and wants them to have a good life and wants them to experience the fruit of the Spirit and the blessings of God? Why do we have to deal with the issue of sin? Why? Because of the weakness that is in us by birth. Verse 26. For if we, who is we? All of us. If we go on sinning deliberately after having received the knowledge of the truth. Now, first of all, let's stop for a moment. 
What does sinning deliberately mean in the context of Hebrews? Remember 9.22, chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Remember, he has said that. And then 10.4, he said, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, in the context of Hebrews, now we must put this in the context of Hebrews. We cannot take that sinning deliberately out of the context of Hebrews and apply it elsewhere and be exegetically correct. We're unfaithful to the text. So we can't just apply it willy-nilly. Oh, you've sinned three times in that area? Let me tell you, you need to read Hebrews 10, 26. You still having a problem with that, brother? You need to read that verse. No. This verse is specifically talking about the better sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. Do you remember the previous verses? You remember the other stuff that was before it? Specifically, it's relating to that and the temptation to reject that sacrifice of Jesus as the very foundation and ground of their standing before God as justified, forgiven, and accepted as children forever. Rejecting the blood of Jesus is God's only way of redemption. That's what this is talking about. What would be the result? Listen to these words. And again, these are real warnings. These are not hypothets. These are real. If anyone actually does reject the blood of Jesus, this will happen. It will happen. God has promised that this will happen if we reject. I didn't say if we had a sin problem yesterday, if we told a lie today, or we didn't get to Sunday school on time. Okay, Sunday school on time. I hate to put that in there, but, you know, I have to. (laughs) Thank you. Rejecting Jesus. I don't want him anymore. I'm finished with it. It doesn't work. The result, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Friends, when we share the gospel, we are not to be preaching hellfire and damnation and trying to scare the hell out of them. We are to be administering the word of God that the law has been broken by them and they need to be forgiven. But if you're ministering to someone who continually says no, 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 there may come a time when you have to say, I need to tell you now what you're doing. You may need to say you're going to hell. You may need to say you're in great danger. There remains no longer sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He warns them. But then after warning them in the most solemn way, he wants to exhort them. And so he exhorts them in verses 32 to 34. First, remember your past. In view of the terror of this warning, the author admonishes his audience. In view of this warning, he says this in verse 32 to 34. Recall one of the major problems of trials. One of the biggest difficulties we are subject to in trials and difficult or bad or whatever circumstances is this. Spiritual amnesia. How many of us have experienced spiritual amnesia when things go wrong in our lives? It is one of the biggest difficulties or problems or weaknesses that we have. We begin to forget. Therefore, the Bible and the author says, remember, call to mind, decide to put your mind on what God has done and who he is and how faithful he has been. I encourage people regularly, and when they come to the office, they've been experiencing difficulties. I say to them, why don't you do this? Take a sheet of paper of whatever and write down a listing of the things that God has done in your life, beginning with your salvation. And God has done this, and God has done this, and God has done this. and God. Write it down so the next time you experience a difficulty, run to that thing and read it over and over and over and over again so your mind and your heart can be encouraged against the temptation or the trial to stand against it in a way that you can be an overcomer. We don't have to fall for spiritual amnesia. There are ways that we can overcome this, very practical ways. So there are some of you in here who may need just to write down some of this stuff, stick it on your icebox, or put it on your dashboard, or do it somewhere where the next time you have difficulties, read it. Remember the former days when after you were enlightened, when you were born again, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partakers, partners with those who were so treated. You, in the past, have been under severe trials. Remember this, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you were joyfully accepting the plundering of your own property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He said, you've been through this kind of stuff before. You may have been through worse things before. You know, sometimes we've been through worse things. But how many of you have felt like I have? I've been through worse trials. But sometimes it's not the severity of the trial. It's just the quantity of the trials. You know, it's like, yeah, I know. I've been through much worse. But, you know, after a while, this gets old. I don't need this anymore. Anybody who like the Eddie, you know, I don't, I don't need this anymore. I, I just need relief. No, you need association with Christ. I, you know, yeah, I've been through worse. Because I remember a few years ago, that, uh, I, I just need a little relief. Remember. Remember. 
the God of glory and his work in your life and his faithfulness and his goodness and his ministry and his kindness, his forbearance, his gentleness, his forgiveness. Remember that, that you've already experienced over and over and over again, multitudes upon multitudes of time. Remember that when you go through that stuff. Remember it. Spiritual amnesia. He says, also, not only remember what has happened, but in verse 35 to 38, he says, remember Jesus coming back. Right? I don't think we do well in this church, in this area of eschatology, the end times, the last days. Jesus is coming back. He left, and he said, I'm coming back. So there's got to be an end to this one day, whether I see it or not. He is coming back. Every day remember and remind yourself, today could be the day. They needed endurance, which comes from anticipating Jesus' return. You see, their minds had to be taken from just the world's things to the heavenly. He's coming back. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Jesus says, I'm coming back. And remember their own faith in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back. We're not going to shrink back, he says. See, I'm going to go through trials, and you're going to go through trials. But our determination should be we are not going to be overcome by our trials. I'm not going to try. I will overcome because I have the power of the Holy Spirit. I refuse to be overcome by my trials. Boy, that's arrogance. No. It is belief and dependence upon the word and sufficiency and power of God. Be tenacious and strong about this. Be angry with your sin and your giving in. And have a mindset, I will not give in. I will not shrink back. I will not cave in. Do we have a God who will answer that and move in my heart when that's my attitude? What's the illustration? You see, in the previous verse, the author says, we are not of those who shrink back but are destroyed and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. See, we're that group. So what's the illustration that he gives? What is the proof of that? Chapter 11. He says this. Let me tell you something. I want to share a few thoughts and a few testimonies with you of people who have persevered through much more than you have. 
They had the same spirit. They had the same faith. They had the same power. They have what you had, except you have it in fullness in Christ, but they had it in shadows, and even they had it in shadows and partiality. They persevered, even having not in fullness. Therefore, you, in the fullness of the faith, because of Christ's resurrection, can do just as they did and even greater. Do you believe this? Now, by now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation, not condemnation. By faith we understood that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things that are invisible, or invisible rather. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. The which he was com- through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith he died and still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out into the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as of our own land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with them of the same promise. For he was looking to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, and many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them afar off and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which he figuratively speaking did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. 
By faith, people crossed the Red Sea as in dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time will not fail me to talk about Gideon, Barak, and Samson, Jephthah, and of David, and of Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were torn, tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in sheep, the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect." Don't go back. Trust God. This is a testimony, a very short one, that God is able to keep us in the trials and take us all the way through until he returns. Amen.